0: Welcome to the Minority Trailblazer Podcast. And I'm your host, Greg E. Hill, the culture change agent. I'm excited, y'all. I like seriously. I know I say this before every podcast, but this podcast is a little different. This is a special edition of the Minority Trailblazer Podcast. And the reason why it's so special is because we're in a pivotal. Let me turn it down, let me tone it down a little bit. We're in a pivotal because this is real this is real serious and real sensitive. We're in a pivotal, 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 pivotal point in our time as African-Americans within the United States. There's a lot of stuff going on across the board in education, in police brutality, in politics, in sports. I mean, there's a lot going on specifically in the civil rights space. Um, There's been a lot of great activism out there, a lot of young, vibrant, energetic leaders taken to the forefront and leading a lot of these issues and there's been a a groundswell people around them that are supporting and and, and really being knowledgeable about what's going on and today our guest is one of the the leaders of the movement one of the leaders of the movement and this young man um and i say young man like i'm 45 (laughs) but this man um is the guy is the is the man the brother that started the hunger strike in missouri and today he's going to share his story share what the progress is being made the progress is yet to be made in missouri and across the country and i guarantee this interview will be a value add so please lock in lock in absorb it share the content and um yeah that's really all i got also too the format's going to be a little different. We're still going to have our, our past. We'll talk about um, our, our future guests. We're going to have our present talk talk about um, the issues, where it stands today, and then the future. But also, today we're adding in a Q&A round. And I got to send a special thank you to Travis Jackson and the great folks at HBCU Pride Nation for facilitating this discussion. Because he posted something on Instagram the other day asking for questions. For our featured guests and over 30 some odd leaders and students um answered the call and engaged and asked questions so i parsed it down to around 10 questions so thank you those for being engaged and asking real questions like i, I looked at my question i looked at their I'm like dang bro they need to be in the show like their question is so legit so yes thank you special shout out to um hbcu pride nation for facilitating that dialogue and um that is the fourth section of the show. So if you ask a question, stick around to the end, because that's when we'll be answering all the questions you have for the show. So without further ado, I'm excited. It is my pleasure, my honor to introduce my friend, my brother, Jonathan Butler to the Minority Trailblazer podcast.
1: Hey, how's everybody doing? Um, you know, first off, you know, Greg, uh, you know, definitely want to appreciate you uh, for reaching out. I know we met at the conference and so. You know, definitely get a chance to have face to face time with you and interact. Um, just definitely uh, knowing what you're trying to do with not only this podcast, but the work that you're doing outside of this. Um, so I definitely want to commend you um, on just the work that you're doing in terms of really trying to raise these voices um, and even just understanding how this is like a minority trailblazers thing. Mm-hmm. Um one of the things that we kind of talk about in school all the time is like we joke about it cuz you know there's different terms that you can use within yeah. academic literature and whatnot. So, you know, we <laughs> always joke about it is like I'm not a minority, ain't nothing minor about me, you know. What I'm yeah. <laughs> but but <laughs> I appreciate the fact that you're, you're you're elevating um and even being able to be in this space uh sharing my story to to kind of highlight and elevate um not necessarily me um and trying to give myself shine, but definitely whatever I can do in terms of lending encouragement um and an inspiration. Um, that's what I'm gonna try and do in this time. Um, so I think we're just gonna go ahead and jump in in terms of you know uh, yeah,
0: everything and I'm going gonna, on yeah um yeah we're gonna jump into that. But I'm gonna give I'm gonna give the audience a little context and then give our our, our new listeners a a brief outline of the show. So I got you, I got you, I got you. So a little context behind how I met Jonathan. Um, I currently work at um I work in academia and we met at a Duke Civil Rights Law Conference and this was for me, a life-changing conference because I never been in a space where we had law professors in from all across the country talking at a a case-by-case level for 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 on minority issues, and civil rights issues. So I had a chance to hear him listen in on a panel and give his take on what's happened in Missouri, especially the hunger strike, which um, he is the originator of. And I was like, yo, I never heard this story because you look on the media, they give their their sound about, I thought the the, the football players did it because I listened to ESPN and I was like, man, I really want to share this story. So um, we're going to dig deep into that. But before we do, I always start the show off with a quote um, from our guest and um, their favorite quote and how it applies and how they use it in their everyday life. So Jonathan, what's your favorite quote and can you give me a story on how you use that in your everyday life?
1: Absolutely. Um, For me, you know, I have a ton of quotes I can pull on, but one (laughs) that's really um, been on my heart, you know, especially these past, you know, four to five months, just with everything we've been doing in terms of Mm -hmm. activism, um, is is by Shadda Shakur. And it says, um, it is our duty to fight for our freedom. It is our duty to win. We must love and support each other. We -hmm. have nothing to lose but our chains. And for me, you know, I'm I'm still trying to find the words of how a, you know, just to really explain how this resonates with me because, you know, you know, well beyond just the example that, you know, Asada, MLK, Malcolm, Stokely, you know, all all the the past leaders who have set before us in terms of like civil rights, in terms of activism, um, I really think of, you know, how this plays into my life of this idea that, you know, it's our duty to fight for our freedom really originates from, you know. This resistance that I gained from my grandfather, you know, mm-hmm. again, um, with his experience, you know, growing up from nothing, literally nothing, um, in New York, um, and, 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 you know, starting my family and, and raising, you know, and, and building me up in terms of what it meant to not only engage in the community, um, uh, but to mm-hmm. also just really truly be selfless. Again, you know, he, he was a, he was a, he was a strong black preacher as well. And so just understanding that, you know, what it means to fight on so many different levels. You know, he fought for the New York community, um, in the law realm. He fought for, um, the people, um, in his role as a pastor, he fought, you know, just people, you know, just, you know, giving people food to eat, you know? So he really set forth this true example of what it means to fight for our freedom, what it means to win, what it means to love and support each other and what it truly means to to have nothing to lose but our chains. Because at the end of all this, um, you know, when you talk about life, um, it's not going to be about, you know, who we met, you know, how many followers we have. It's going to be about the legacy we left behind of how many lives did you touch um, and did you do everything you could in, in your lifetime to really make a change. So that's that's yeah. that, that's one of the quotes that really sticks with me um, and has been sticking with me for a while now
0: powerful i can tell from your response this is going to be the show a a, a, a amazing show so before we can kind of paint the picture on the current issues right now i do and i know you don't want to talk about yourself a lot i mean a lot of people in in the movement a lot of people themselves they're they're really humble but i really want people to understand where you come from because when i heard like where you were born i was like what he that doesn't make sense so if you could give our audience um a little personal background of kind of where you're from and, and who you are outside of kind of the space you're in right now
1: absolutely um well I, I i tell people all the time i'm born from the best place that you've probably never been to um i was born in the midwest omaha nebraska
0: nebraska
1: you know also also the the place you know former to you know greats such as, you know, Malcolm X, Gabriel Union, you know, you know, there's Malcolm X was
0: born in Nebraska. Right? Yes, sir. I thought he was born in Brooklyn.
1: <laughs> ah, nah, so you got to know your history where he, he, yeah. he grew up. And so like, there, there've been some great people that come out of Omaha. And for me, um, you know, just with the transition that my family went through, because again, my family did, you know, again, with my grandfather and that side of the family grew up on the East coast, um, they just migrated to the Midwest. And so I've known this lifestyle of living in the Midwest, um, all my life. And so, um, for me, you know, it's just always been this experience, um, and this kind of battle back and forth of just like what it means to be black. Uh, mm-hmm. so when I think about everything I've experienced, um, you know, from like doing the YMCA at a young age, you know, getting involved. You know, with sports. Um, you know, uh, shout out to my my high school, Omaha Central High. You know, I was on the the state football uh, championship team. You know, okay, okay. You know, I was also involved in track and field. You know, so for me, um, when I look at who I am, um, there's this embodiment of one community engagement. Um, just because you know, um, having uh, being raised in a Christian household. Uh, Mm Um, you know, I was exposed to a lot of things, right. Obviously the ministry side of it, um, and, and, you know, the prayer and all that, but also the side of like really, you know, going out and giving out food to the hungry. Um, you know, I did, you know, at a very young age, I was 10 years old going to, you know, the prisons with my, my parents, um, and, you know, praying for, for the the inmates in, in the prison. So, you know, I have that, that, that side of, you know, really understanding again, pointing back to loving and supporting each other, um this background of really engaging with the community as well as, um, me, I'm just, you know, I'm a fun loving guy, you know, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm a little bit of everywhere, you know, I enjoy, you know? <laughs> um, you know, I went to Christian camp one year and, and found out how to do archery. So, you know, I enjoy archery, you know, <laughs> you know, I, you know, I'll drive into the lane, you know what I'm saying? You know, we, we can hoop outside, you know what I'm saying? So, you know, I, there's a lot of you know aspects to me, but it, mm-hmm. for me, it's just like being, you know, just, I, I, I really view myself as just as ordinary person, um, and I just try and do extraordinary things through love each and every day. And I think that's shown in the way that I was raised um, in the way that, you know, I hope is shown every day in the way that my actions speak
0: for themselves. I got you, man. Perfect answer. Perfect answer. And I know um, a friend of mine, I know I ain't in, in, in the Q&A round yet, but a friend of mine, they they definitely want to ask you, um, Thomas Earn, ask you, what led you in your loof, in your youth to kind of where you are now? into this activist and I, and I use the term activist i know some people might like activist like oh you're an activist if you're it, it, there's a lot of stuff behind that term but what led you in your youth like how did you yeah what led you to this activist type of realm and understanding because i know you mentioned your family your upbringing but i mean the stuff and we're going to get to it that you have done thus far it didn't just happen overnight so what kind of led you down that road and that path
1: i think for me it you know there's levels obviously you know i've spoken on the family which i think is a huge portion of it but i also think understanding how the midwest functions um if, you, if you've lived in the midwest you, you know how it is um and so uh it's kind of hard to explain but also understanding the fact that you know I I grew up in a city um, in, in Omaha where we have, you know, about 400,000 plus people. Right. People think mm-hmm. people think it's like only like 200 people. No, it, it's a real city. It's 400.
0: <laughs> um,
1: but growing up where, you know, we're only about five percent. Um, the black population is about five percent. But even mm-hmm. within that, um, when when the sun goes down and the streetlights come on, you know, what side of the city to be on um, so that you're not in trouble. And so for me this early awareness at a very young age of being profiled by the police, by, by having interactions in school, you know, being, you know, called out my name with racial slurs. um, I think were the, the early stages of, you know, when you combine that with what the lessons I was getting from my family, I started to really understand that, you know, the, the the singular identity of just being black, you know, not even being like a black male or putting anything else on it, just being black um, truly was, was something that stood out um, in America. And so for me, um, when I started to get involved with um, the Urban League um, back mm-hmm. in back in Omaha, Nebraska, when I was starting involved, um, not just per, you know participating in the YMCA, but also like doing being a mentor, um, those are the things that like initially got me into um, what we would nowadays consider activism. And then you know being you know blessed and afforded the opportunity to, to come to college, you know I got involved in organizations like Mizzou's Black Men's Initiative, um, the Legion of Black Collegians. I was a senator for that. And so my activism just took many forms over the years. And then as of recently, in the past several years, again, you know, specifically post-Ferguson, it manifested itself into more of the grassroots organizing activism. So, again, like I've had this long span of activism, you know, literally, you know, doing prison ministry at a very young age to, you know, being in student organizations to now like doing grassroots organizations. Um, But it's always been about community engagement. I think that's really where um, this my, my inspiration spurs from.
0: So it's been basically a decade, decade and a half of just community engagement, that being the core focus and that kind of led you down the route. So that's huge. So we're going to jump right in to presently um, the issue and where it kind of all started in in Missouri and the hunger strike. So before you even get into the hunger strike, what made you what action if you is there? I know it was a, a bowl up of different things, but if you can kind of point to and tell us the one story, if you have one that kind of led you say, okay, enough is enough. I need to do something drastic to let our voice be heard.
1: You know, it's 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 honestly a lot harder than you may think to like pinpoint it. And I, I know that's mm-hmm. a question I get asked all the time. And so you know, a lot of people, you know, without asking me, were like, oh, it was you know the incident with you know the feces in the residence hall, or oh, it was this situation, or oh, it was that situation. And for me. Even though the hunger strike didn't manifest until um, you know, this past month, and as you know, again, there's a lot of stuff that's happened in the past 90 to 100 days on this campus, mm-hmm. for me, I would almost pinpoint it back to um, the situation um, several years ago with um, Sasha um, in which she was a student athlete, she was a swimmer here at the university, um, mm-hmm. and she was sexually assaulted um, by fellow athletes on campus. Uh, and for a um after after the incident happened, she came forth um she talked to the athletic department, she talked to administrators, and for over a year, no one did anything um at all and so you know prior- again giving context prior to this, we had you know cotton balls thrown on the the front lawn of our black culture center, we had inkwork spray mm-hmm. painted everywhere. You know, I got, you know, when Obama got elected on campus, I got in a a physical altercation with three young gentlemen who decided to jump me because I was the source of all the world's problems, you know, so so I, I, you know, you've seen these incidences, I've seen these incidents occur, but for for me, that was like almost a, a, you know, a paralyzing event to go through. Um, Not only, you know, again, I wasn't super close with Sasha, but knowing that, you know, we had similar circles, I'd interact before and knowing her character, knowing that, you know, because of how reactionary the university was, um, you know, again, like you would think that, you know, if I file a report, you know, if I, you know, I put in, you know, submit my you know, you know incident, you know, to the police or whatever that it will be listened to but I think honestly when I reflect on it, it was that point where I really started to, you know, put this question in my mind of like, what do we have to do? And we talking about black people, you know, talking about black students on campuses like Looking at our experience, no one wants to believe us. No one wants to listen to us when we're at diversity forums. No one wants to listen to us when we're you know, having one-on-one conversations with, you know, faculty, staff, and administrators. No one wants to listen to us when we're sending emails. And in a similar situation, no one wants to listen to this young lady. Um, and unfortunately, you know, after over a year of trying to fight that battle, um, She ended up taking her own life just because of the the trauma.
0: Oh, my goodness.
1: The the traumatizing incident of, you know, being sexually assaulted, not having administrators, you know, believe her, And then now we have all of these reactionary policies in terms of Title IX and and other things that are happening on campus. And so, honestly, like, if you want to pinpoint something, I think Mm -hmm. that really paralyzed me um, on an emotional level because, like, like at that point like what what else do you expect us to do right everyone you know wants black students to be respectable and you know quote unquote civilized and you know go through the proper channels but here you have a prime example of someone who went through the quote unquote proper channels um you know went through an extremely traumatic incident um and then you still don't have them you know being valued as their own human lives. so um, I think honestly, that's where a lot of this stuff originates is just understanding that, you know, we've been fighting this battle and obviously racism didn't stop, start, start at Mizzou, right. You know, we, mm-hmm. things, but you know, how it manifests on campus is something that, you know, admins, faculty, students, and staff can control. Um, and it just wasn't happening. And so like, I, that, you know, that pressure of feeling back to, to a corner really, I think started, um, at that point.
0: That's, that's. I, I won't even speak on that, man. That that's self-explanatory. So, why did you choose a hunger strike, or was it like a group thing, kind of like the in the, the the Rosa Parks situation where people behind you said this is this is it? Or when I say situation, please don't please please listeners don't think I'm taking that taking it lightly, please. But how why a hunger strike? For me,
1: the biggest thing was that. Similar to the Sasha Menu Corey situation, um, you know, we had, we had been working. We had done some post-Works and, you know, work with an organization called MU for Mike Brown, which was led by three black women. Um, when we did some really great work, you know, in terms of like vigils, community building. Amazing work. Like, is it,
0: was a Shirella part of that, too? Um, Who was the three black women? Have you just kind the of. The three black women it? were
1: uh, Na- Naomi Doherty, um, Ashley mm-hmm. Bland, and then Kay Beck. Uh, okay and so they 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 you know again a lot of us a bunch of us i would say like 15 to 20 of us because again mm-hmm. we're only about two hours away from ferguson when everything happened with mike brown you know i went down the the mike brown was murdered august 9th i was there august 12th uh, a lot Denver. of people were there within you know several days and organizing and doing a lot of that stuff and so that's what they brought back from the movement but again uh I would say I personally, you know, as we, you know, went through last year in 2014, that we, you know, we went, you had a a series of diversity forums in which, uh, you know, one of our vice chancellors at a university called, you know, you know, B word fits
0: a vice chancellor,
1: a vice chancellor. Again, you're talking about the third rank down from chancellor um, calling, you know, black students you know talking about our pain b word fits you know and so it, it for me is like i started to feel this pressure again of feeling back into a corner and then you have you, you know what we had this year in 2015 of just like we're trying to reignite you know those conversations we're trying to get people to you know you know follow through on the promises that they gave us in post-ferguson post-ferguson and mizzou they gave us a lot of promises about change and fall through on none of them and so mm-hmm. Um, We just got to the climax where, you know, we've talked to our vice chancellors, they're not listening to us or respecting us. We've talked to faculty, they're not listening or to us, talked to our provost, chancellor. And so when you look at the evolution of the Concerned Student 1950 group, the group as a whole um, Mm -hmm. started a series of protests and things on campus to to really try and ignite those situations. But for me personally, the hunger strike was just something I felt that I needed to do because, again, getting back to this point of paralyzation of saying like, you know, my humanity, my basic humanity is not being respected or acknowledged. Um, I felt like the hunger strike was something that was necessary because I I wanted to show people through my action that this is serious because clearly they thought it was a game and and clearly There's still people even to this day after the hunger strike who still think it's a game. Um, And for me, I had to, you know, being willing to lose my life was a very serious thing, but I needed people to understand how serious this is. You know, we're literally playing with people's lives. And when you have incidences happening on campuses every day where you have, you know, UCC, where you have mass shootings, where you have other incidences where people, you know, students are getting beat up um, like at the the college of William and Mary um, or William and Clark. uh, I may be remembering the college wrong, but you have these incidences and they're getting more and more violent because the college campus cultures are being allowed to operate that way because you don't have mm. strong leadership. They're being allowed to operate that way. And I think that's the key thing. So it's me, it's like, it's serious. And no one else wanted to have that same urgency for change. They just wanted to talk and put out press releases. And <laughs> for me, I, I got to, again, like I said, with the previous situation, I got to a point where I, I felt paralyzed. I fell back into a corner. I'm just like, I can't. I can't get to this place again, because even if I never get to see this change, you know, I probably won't ever get to see the, the full extent of, you know, what we're able to do with Concerned Student 1950 and the hunger strike. But for me, I I need to show them that this was serious. And I was willing to to sacrifice my life, which I was, um, to show people that, you know, this is this is not a game. My life, um, the life of other black students, the life of, you know, Muslim students, the life of brown students, you know, the, it's not a game.
0: Mm. So- and, if, and, and about the, the strike, what, what would you say, how was the support like? Because I know when we talked, um, when I heard you and listened to you in first panel at the Duke Civil Rights Law Conference, and I listened to the story of how people, of course, there's two sides. And we, I, if you could briefly talk about both sides, the people that really supported you and were around you and kept you going through that time. Because I know the strike was physically very challenging. Mentally, it had to be challenged as well. And then please do talk about some of the negative aspects of it, because I don't want to have this whole conversation and not highlight the fact that there is a lot of opposition to what you're doing. Everybody's not 100 percent behind that. So if you could talk specifically about the hunger strike, the support that manifested from the community. And I know you spoke about the fa- the faculty and professors as well, but also the negative side that has came with it as well, being the responsibility of what you've been doing. hmm.
1: Yeah. Um, for, for me, the, the, the positive side, the positive support definitely came from obviously, you know, I've said it time and time again, the community as a whole. So, you know, you, I, I had people literally, I, I was not expecting the response that I got, um, both positive and negative. I really wasn't expecting it. Um, I really just wanted to, to have this impact, um, mainly with administration, um, change what happened with the administration, but not knowing that, you know, with my actions and I released the letter that, you know, I had people coming out of the woodworks, um, you know, coming to support people on campus that I haven't talked to in like a year or two years, (laughs) people from, you know, like back home who I haven't talked to in a while, you know, people across the nation who have never met me a day in their life. And so there's this really communal effect that happened not only on campus, but across the nation. And so you know having teachers and graduate students willing to do walkouts in the name of you know trying to get- r- racial you know equity on campus um and, you know racial justice on campus when you when you have students who are you know occupying a space on campus with the campsite. You know, I, yeah, I didn't tell anybody to do that, but they were just like, you know, we're going to camp out on the quad until JB's, you know, hunger strike is over. And, you know, so for me, the support was just so beautiful because, again, this central idea that I hold that, you know, there's still beauty in humanity. You know, there's still, you know, we can still fight and still fight for a better tomorrow because there are good people out there. I think that what was shown um, in the time during the hunger strike specifically because whether people were checking on me via text, um, you know, people, you know, literally helping me walk to and from, you know, class. Whatever the case was, you know, there's an outpouring of support that was um, really amazing to see. But you know, even with the good, you know, yet yeah, mm-hmm. that as well. Um, it was really unfortunate. Um, there, there, there's, there's a lot of levels I could address, but I think there's three main levels to address specifically. Um, a okay. conversation of when you talk about negativity is one. Um, Unfortunately, the negativity within our own black community, Um, a lot of black people, um, you know, when you talk about black alumni, when you talk about black students really just didn't understand it. Right. Um, Rather than actually doing their own research about what's happening in their own community, um, they chose to believe, you know, you know, hot topic, you know, inappropriately written headlines and then just make assumptions based off that. So I, I can't tell you how many screenshots I have of, you know, Facebook messages that people said that were pretty nasty and other things. people. Are...
0: And this is from our own people. This is from us, right? Yeah. This,
1: unfortunately, it's, it's from, it's from fellow black people. They're, they're, they're people just being nasty and sending emails about me across school emails, you know, just saying some really, you know, just, it's, it's really unfortunate just the things that people are saying, because, um, Honestly, you know, these, again, are people who have never had a conversation with me who who don't know me and, again, are just making assumptions of, you know, why I'm doing this. Oh, I'm doing, you know, JB's doing this for attention or he's doing this for X, Y, Z, not understanding that, you know activism work is you know what i've been doing the majority of my life um in different realms and that the fact if you truly understood my heart you know for justice you understand why i'm doing this but you know people never took the time for that and so that was one level that was honestly pretty disheartening you know you can deal with trolls on twitter you can deal with you know random, <laughs> you know because those are people i don't yeah. have a connection with but you know i uh-huh. really do have a heart for the black community and so you know it's just you know it was disheartening in the moment. Um, you know, since then, we've been able to have conversations with some of those people, not all, but some of those people and, and kind of get perspective on it. But just even seeing how self-hate and internalized oppression affected our own community during that time was pretty hard to to take. Um, you know, of course, I, I bri- briefly mentioned it, but you have the trolls. I think mm-hmm. that's another demographic. You have people who literally, um, just because, you know, Donald Says. Just because Rush Limbaugh said, said something that there, they just they found us on social media and started harassing us, and so obviously there's just the ignorance, you know, which honestly doesn't affect me at all because you know I have no connection to you. One, right, and then two, it's just the fact that you, you're just saying some off the wall things that make no type of sense. Um, it's just like you know, at one point in time, people were saying that I, I, I was doing this to start a campaign to kill all um, police officers what and, and i was just literally li- in you know again this is stuff i just you know it was so wild i had to screenshot it cuz after you know I, I'm, I i need it for for evidence for later but literally how do we
0: address it yeah
1: how, did, how do we go from a conversation about me doing a hunger strike to you know get racial justice on campus to like killing police officers you know mm-hmm. and so and so people were literally even in that time were just having their own agendas um and i think there's also you know understanding that I think a third uh, pretty significant source of negativity um, did come from actually faculty, right? Um, because for faculty, there's this big, I almost frame it that there's this big like dialogue on how
0: change needs to happen. Oh yeah, please speak on that because that's that's only in faculty. That's can kind of maybe our our older demographic of America. Um, but I, I, I'm gonna let you see because you I know you gonna hit on yeah. it. Yeah, <laughs> and,
1: and, and yeah, you're you're already kind of hitting on where I'm going with this. Is that you know obviously there's a whole intergenerational component. Um, and so like kind of flipping the script real quick, we got a lot of intergenerational support from people who have previously done activism on campus. So during the 80s, during apartheid. There was occupation of on campus on our quad as well, and they're you know they're camping out and fighting against the university to trying to get um, divestment to happen. So from mm-hmm. people like that, we got a lot of support, you know. But then you have this other side of intergenerational who are just like calling us savages, which I'm just like you. You're a tenured faculty. Um, calling your own students savages and saying that, you know, we're not civilized and we're calling us un- unintelligent, you know, stuff that I would expect to see from a random troll on the internet, mm-hmm. but I wouldn't expect to see from a professor who's teaching me, you know, in, in the economics department or teaching me in the, the business department. And so it's this whole component that, you know, there's this, I'm not going to call it flawed logic, but there's this, I mean, I'll call it flawed logic. There's this
0: flawed- Call Legacy.
1: Yeah, call it to see it. there's this flawed logic that there's literally only one way to do activism. Not understanding that, you know, when you talk about activism and social change, protest is always gonna be important. Policy is always going to be important. And literally everything in between is going to be important for change. Not one tactic alone is going to win this fight. Um and it was really disappointing, honestly, to see, you know, and again, these just weren't like faculty and staff that were black. These are faculty and staff of all colors, right? Um, th- these are the same people who, um, on day four of the hunger strike, were trying to get me committed to a psychiatric ward so they could force feed me. Um, which you know, that, wow. that, that's a whole story I'm gonna come out in my autobiography about. And
0: yeah, yeah, me. you shouldn't even let that slip on a jump. But I'm uh, no, but I mean, I've already,
1: I've already talked about people because even with <laughs> that, there's levels um, to to you know those type of actions. People were literally, you know, because they just didn't want to understand students in our pain and how we were, you know trying to express ourselves and what we're going through, through protests, there's such a lack of, you know, again, I would expect an educated person with multiple degrees to, you know, want to do their proper research, but, you know, not even having those type of people want to do their research and really connect um, and bridge the gap um, was, Mm -hmm. was uh, kind of a source of negativity as well. So, you know, again, those are just three sources. There's definitely a lot, but I think that those are pretty significant when you talk about this dialogue, right. Uh, Mm -hmm. Like, what does activism look in a tangible manner? Um, Especially this intergenerational component of just like y'all did it one way. uh, We're doing it another way. Uh, It doesn't mean either way is right or wrong, but we're saying we just have different methods of going about um, this change that we're, we're all looking for.
0: That's pivotal, man. That's pivotal. And honestly, there's so much stuff that we can kind of dig into on the the present state, but I think you've, Title not in that. And before we go into the future state of what's going on for you personally in the movement, I do want to address one key thing that I it took I had it made me take a seat when we had our when I first listened to you and um, President Head on the panel at uh, Duke Civil Rights um, Civil Rights Law Conference is you spoke on the fact of imp- the importance of truly knowing the history. Um, before before you lead in a in a in an aspect because you broke down I want you to break it down for our audience you broke down the history of um, racism in Missouri to a level that I was like wow because a lot of times in in, in the past I've been one of the I consider myself an influencer of some sort and I used to speak on a lot of issues right but I, I, I didn't realize and I just as I getting older how much I did not know and that I had to shut up and sit down and let people that do know speak on it and, and find out how I can help in my way because like speaking on this issue and we have a lot of leaders out there speaking on topics that they shouldn't be doing. A lot of a lot of third party bloggers and hot take, like you said, are speaking about issues that they haven't done the proper research on to frame it and to advocate in the right way. So you speak about briefly the 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 core issues that already been happening in missouri way before you even got to the hunger strike because that was pivotal when you said that it, it was like yo it dawned on me a lot of different things and um i really just want to speak that briefly
1: yeah and and just touch on this briefly uh, I'll centralize it around the core issue for me is that I just have this inherent curiosity that my mother really nurtured in me to really question everything around me. I think all, far too often, you know, that try, we, we, you know, again, that's a whole different discussion on child development, but how we like silence the curiosity and innovation of our youth. Uh, that, mm-hmm. Again, that's a whole different thing. But I'm, you know, I was blessed to have my mother really nurture that for me. And so I've always questioned things. So for me. I try and I, you know, idealize like, why would a rational, right? If I'm if I'm gonna just go out on a limb and say, why would this rational human being call me the N word and write it on my my residence hall door, you know, and really trying to understand like what brought someone to that point to inherently have that type of hate in their heart to do those type of actions, right? Mm-hmm. So for me it it was just a natural leading up to like doing my research. So when you look at Missouri, Missouri it's uh, as as well as several other states has a really extreme case of mistaken identity. Um, Missouri wanted to be the South so bad, um, but the South, you know, historically, again, this is just like paraphrasing the history, but the South really didn't want Missouri. So even though Missouri was historically a slave state um, and never embodied its true identity as a quote unquote um, southern state because it never truly aligned with southern ideals, again, in terms of how slavery works. But even understanding that Missouri being a former slave state, understanding um, the slave labor that built literally the columns that we, you know, on our campus that we idealized Jesse hall, which we idealized you know, all these things on campus were literally built on the backs of black and Brown labor and talking and slave labor at that. So when you look at that history and then you add in the component of understanding how racism has been interplaying, you know, literally on a global scale of how this all works together, even looking at, you know, how the university invests its funds and we buy, you know, stuff from private prisons. So for me, it's, you know, all these aspects of understanding the components of where we come from um, were just kind of innate to me because I, I just question is like, why would, you know, to, to understand why three white guys wanted to beat me up the night Obama got elected just because I was black. We have to talk about the history of where these guys come from, from these rural towns in Missouri, talk about what, how they were socialized, right? And then talk about the socialization that they're getting on campus. Mm.
0: Damn, man. You you definitely tied a knot on that, man. And I appreciate you addressing the importance of really before you advocate, especially on things as critical um, as civil rights and whatnot, to, to have that curiosity. Have that curiosity. Ask those questions to yourself before you ask it of other people. Um, just like I said about Michael Max. like I, I really, I read, I read the, the autobiography of Michael X. I and I ain't know he's from Omaha, Nebraska. So that's crazy, that's crazy. So we're gonna go talk about the future round, and um, specifically before we get to our Q and A, because I had a lot of a lot of people, and I'm gonna give the shout out where it's due to to who facilitated that that Q and A that uh, people referenced to you. But um, a lot of people want to know, and this is our future round. We're talking about future. What's next for you personally?
1: Oh, in a very uh, small scale, um, you know. Uh, you know, in the immediate future, I'm trying to, you know, transition to the next phase. So for me, I actually, um, about two days ago, just finished the first round of applications to PhD programs. Um, I'm really interested in like exploring transnational racism, exploring access, you know, to to college. I'm really interested in how can I further what I'm doing in terms of activism and then add a scholarly component onto it because, you know, in the field right now on uh, higher education, you really don't see. Um, People, um, let alone people of color, um, really researching these things and connecting the activism piece. Right. So we see re- research on race and racism, but we really don't see the connection of how can you put it to action. Right. So the hunger strike was putting that theory that we studied to action, you know, concerns two one nine five zero one nine five O was putting theory to action. And so um, I'm looking at Ph.D. programs applied to a couple already um, and looking to apply to some more. And, you know, at the end of the semester, Um But then, you know, literally, I just want to continue my work. Um, for me, I really want to continue in a more focused realm of community engagement. But that's, those are the next steps for me is like getting a PhD, um, and continue some of the projects that I've been working on for a while that kind of got sidetracked the past couple of months. (laughs) Uh, you know and and really you know start starting on on those initiatives to continue my work within the community because i i think that's where it starts and if nothing else if you don't understand anything else from activism that's happened is that there is so much power in the singular voice so just imagine what happens when we get everyone everyone's voice in the community to stand together got you got you got you and um
0: that's powerful and the next the next question i have is what's next for the movement? And before I answer that, I know a lot of people that's listening are going to be like, okay, Greg, where are the hardball question? Where the hardball? The, I mean, I got, I got your hardball. I left it to y'all, the audience that had the, the pointed question. So please don't be like, oh, you're just throwing these, fl-. like, relax, relax, people. So, um, but what is next for the movement? And when I say the movement, I'm, I'm talking about the movement specifically, kind of the stuff that y'all, because I know y'all been working before, before the hunger strike, working on a lot of issues, but what next do you think is for the movement?
1: For me, I think the, the next phase is going to be an increased awareness on, on black consciousness. Um, something that came about during, you know, the process on campus is that, you know, we held town halls and, you know, we really got a chance to engage with a community that, you know, historically doesn't come together. Right. Unless we're talking about a probate or a party, you know, <laughs> you know and just being just being real, real honest, you know. Um, so we saw an increase in increasing in that community being built and i think that's where a lot of the passion of what we're going to try and do on campus is that you know there's a lot of literature that i know that other you know student leaders know that we really want to start to pass on to that next generation because that's how we make this sustainable right is that you know i graduate in may so i can i can only do so much before my time is up at the university um but what's more important is instilling these morals the the sense of urgency the sense of you know servant leadership the sense of you know activism within the next generation so I think, honestly, just as a whole, without getting into specific initiatives, that's what we're really going to focus on is like raising black consciousness and really um, pouring into the black community here.
0: OK, man. Great. Great. So um, we're going to go to the Q&A and then we're going to go to our the last the last round which is the rapid uh rapid fire answer round and with the Q&A these questions hopefully you can spend around 30 seconds to a minute to address it or if it's, it can if it if it can be addressed quicker it can if not if it's something that you really feel strong about of course i ain't putting no limit on it but um i know i, I know time is of the essence um and before i go into the audience engagement i will say I have to shout out Travis Jackson and the people at HBCU Pride Nation for facilitating this discussion and helping out with these people that um these students and these people that are really in tune to 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 the African American community asking these questions so shout out to the HBCU Pride Nation for um, bringing in these questions so we had around thirty questions and I, I parsed it down to a good ten and um I guess we'll get started April Hatcher her social media at April Lambie do y'all regret going to a PWI over HBCU and do you feel like going to a pwi has been worth it
1: um no um none of us i can confidently tell you again i don't speak on behalf of other people and <laughs> like in this instance i can it's like the resounding answer is no um there is resistance that we've been able to build up by facing um the environment at pwi uh, pwis and i think it's made all of us stronger again not only in our sense of activism but in our sense of community engagement does that make us better um you know those of us um you know, black students who go to PWIs doesn't make us better than those who go to HBCUs. Absolutely not. We're just getting a differing experience, and I think when you talk about you know, um, you know what that looks like, I think we're just gaining a different set of skills. It's not a better set of skills, but we're gaining a different set of skills when engaging with issues like white supremacy, you know, patriarchy, racism, et cetera.
0: Got you, man. Got you. Got you. Um, Shatara two one two asks. What's your feelings on nonviolent protests in this increasingly violent world? Is it still a tool for change or an extension of martyrdom?
1: There's always going to be aspect of martyrdom to nonviolence, because, again, uh, martyrdom, again, just looking at the definition of the word, it doesn't always end in death technically. Um, So it just depends on like what type of martyrdom. So there's social martyrdom, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so there's always going to be those aspects. And so I think it's always going to be necessary to a certain extent. Um, But I'll also say that, you know, I believe in my amendment rights as well. Um, So I do believe there's 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 forms. Uh, of protests that are necessary at different times. So I'll, I'll say that.
0: Gotcha. Great, great answer. Um, Beauty peaceful underscore asked by taking a stand for change. How will this impact future generations and students of your university?
1: Honestly, um, my hope would be that I would. Truly make a heart change with people, and not just you know with me but you know with all the students of all backgrounds you know with activism the Jewish students, Muslim students, black students, latino students, everybody has been contributing to my hope is that it has a real heart change on a on a really deep level, but honestly um what I've seen already in terms of dialogue in terms of um, white peers coming out and, and truly being allies. I think there, there's already a culture shift towards um really trying to be more social justice minded, and I think that's um where we're going to continue to need to focus on and fight for um as we press towards liberation and freedom.
0: Gotcha, great answer. I got like five more questions. Um, Miss Chris Five asks for those people no longer on college campuses, what would be the best way to continue work towards change? Also, on campus or not. What are the most effective roles of white allies? Great question.
1: Oh, the second question is a great question and it could be on its own question. But I'll answer the first half is that uh, the immediate answer is that you can always support students on your campus, like especially if you used to be on a campus, you know how it is and you know what you experience. So why wouldn't you want to support emotionally, socially, financially, et cetera, support the students who are trying to fight for change? Because. I can't name how many times where we were struck for money trying to just get white poster boards from, you know, the, you the (laughs) you know, so support them as well as like the biggest part is going to be engaging in your own community, whether you are custodial services or whether you're a teacher or whether you are a psychiatrist, like you can always engage in your own community and give food to the poor, you know, engage in your local faith community, whatever it is to continue activism, because there's different levels of activism. And then in terms of allyship, that's a whole different conversation I can't go into in 30 seconds. But the big thing Mm -hmm. is that allyship is a verb. Um, It's action. Um, It's not a gold star that you get on your resume. It's not a self-proclaimed title that you get to run around saying that you're an ally. What it is is that you're you're truly enacting MLK's idea of um, dangerous altruism and really putting your life on the line to um, fight for change and fight for justice on behalf of those who are disadvantaged like people of color.
0: Mm. Great answer, man. Great answer. Jay Reed asked, what does success look like? And I know I asked you that. You gave a very unique answer when I asked you that same question. Um, but for you, what does success look like in reference to the movement and, and what you've been doing?
1: Success will always look like to me like like legacy, Um the legacy that each of us leaves behind is the only thing that we have. Um, Maya Angelou, you know, again, paraphrasing, she talked about the fact that, like, people forget what we did. Easily, you know, again, as time passes, we will never forget how um, we made them feel. And so I think that's what success looks like, is that the fact that people can forget my name. Hopefully they do. So I can lose some of these trolls, Um, you (laughs) you know, all this can happen and forget, you know, my physical presence, but not forgetting the fact that there was change here, that something amazing happened during this time, that there's something historic happened during this time. And that being the fire that can be ignited in someone else to continue the change and and to to carry that torch on for the next generation.
0: Powerful, man. Our last three. Jessica B. asks, what was your knowledge of the University of Missouri prior to enrolling? And why did you choose that place of higher education?
1: My knowledge level was at like a negative fifty five (laughs) percent honestly like um i applied to um some schools and again my knowledge of schools and and this is a different conversation on times uh, in terms of high school gatekeeping but you know i only got access to schools that you know my counselors Pointed me and other black students to, you know, so that, you know, I I really didn't have access to it. But what happened is that my mother did reach out to other Midwest schools because I was applying to schools that are pretty far away from Nebraska. And this, you know, just for geographical reasons um, was closest to my family. So that's why I chose Mizzou. And I really didn't have an understanding of, you know, what I was getting myself into. Um, But as I obviously as I grew um, in my experience on campus, I, I learned more and more. And, you know, for me, it wasn't about running away just because someone called me the N word on campus. Um, it really was about trying to fight back and, and trying to get to the core of the issue of why do people act like this? And how could we um, figure out the solution to fight for a better tomorrow?
0: you, gotcha, man. Great, great question, man. Great, great, great answer. Um, our last two, and I'm going to ask one more, and I don't want to ask, how much did the Paris attack affect the media attention on Mizzou University? Do you think you, you want to address that? Uh, I, I, I mean, I, can, I, I
1: can't address it. I mean, the thing is, a lot, a lot of the people who ask that question um, mm-hmm. are asking the question because there is a fake account that was created. Um uh, on campus, that like was posing as a Mizzou student and saying, you know, saying remarks like, "Oh, Mizzou's not getting enough attention," and you know, a lot of people took to that the wrong way. And then again, sensationalizing what they saw in headlines, they only saw those headlines and then start to really demonize, you know, student activists on campus, not understanding that that was a fake account uh, created by someone on uh, one of the white people um, in, in the community um, to really, you know, deface the movement. So. Oh. So so that's where a lot of those questions honestly come from. But the fact is that you know M. O. K. talks about it. Injustice anywhere, you know anywhere is injustice everywhere. So, um, you know you will you won't find anybody on campus who's been involved in activism that wasn't deeply impacted by what happened in Paris because any loss of life is tragic. And so um, that was that was something that students on campus were were mourning with as well.
0: Okay, cool, cool. And no disrespect to the last tech, I when I kind of questioning your questioning your question, I just um, I wanted to kind of preface it before I ask. Um,
1: oh yeah. No, no, was, yeah, no disrespect intended. You know, I I, yeah. I
0: understand. Yeah, I'm glad you broke it broke it down like that because um, but yeah, and our last two is uh, Lativia Alexander asks, what has the aftermath looked like for him, the students involved in the process, and a university of all. Have you or any others that have been involved um, been along the planning process for affecting campus campus culture in general? Like, I mean, because I, I guess he's alluding to there's been a I guess there's initiative or there's something involved in the campus culture. Have they sat down with you and now are you in the process of working with the campus on campus culture? And what does it impact uh, after your movement's been involved? Mm-hmm.
1: Contrary to, to popular belief, we've been involved in policy work for years. Um, have <laughs> we gotten the acknowledgement for that? No. Um, has the media chosen to re- write or you know highlight those stories? Absolutely not, because they don't want to show black students being intelligent. Um, but we've been involved in policy work for years. Um, through the hunger strike and through, you know, what concerns you when I five, Oh, we now have a, a a more national platform in which to work in those, you know, conversations we, you know, with faculty council, with administrators. And so, um, that's what we, you know, we're going to continue to do what we've always been doing, which is being in those meetings and being in those rooms. And now that we have the ears of campus leadership and with the recent change in certain leadership positions, we are now having people in those positions who are actually going to like put forth initiatives that help, um, Our campus and so we're gonna continue that policy work Um, does the new normal look different absolutely Um, I literally walked into Panera today just to get um, a hot tea and I had like literally I walked in the door and then like everyone got really silent um and then <laughs> started like, whispering and like it didn't take until like one person approached me is like are you that one guy and it was just like uh yeah and you know people were side eyeing me you know getting on their phones <laughs> they was probably you know texting up their group chats you know stuff about me but it was just like you know there's a new normal for all of us who have been involved because again with this national attention um you know it definitely puts a different light on our lives but again we we're always continuing to focus on the task at hand which is liberation and freedom and so um you know our lives do look a little bit differently but you know we're still students you know we're still activists we're still you know operating in our normal everyday roles because you know there's still work to be done
0: mm, great answer great answer and the last question to kind of close out the q and a like i said thank you hbc pride nation travis jackson for helping facilitate so thank you for everybody engaging like asking questions it really meant a lot i said 30 plus questions like this is this is and this is a matter of 10 minutes 30 real questions not just fluff ones. so thank you everyone for engaging and our last one to bring us all home i think it was a a pretty deep question um victoria asked what is the most effective way to emotionally heal from the scars of racism
1: Mm.
0: yeah that's a deep one i was like goodness gracious boy that's it
1: you know there, there, there's about three things that come to mind immediately, but I think if we want to centralize it in a very brief manner. Um,
0: I mean, you can take much time because this is a deep one. Mm-hmm. I mean, whatever, whatever feels that you need to say to kind of answer that question, I think it would be powerful for our whole, our listeners in general. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, I would say is that, you know, and I've said this many, many times in the media, I live by two principles, right? Um, one is dialogue and two is radical love, right? So, Dialogue would definitely be one of the the entry points, right? Because if until we actually talk about our differences like me talking to a white person them talking to someone who's Muslim talking to somebody else who you know may identify you know as transgender you know w- w- once we start to uh, you know have the dialogues amongst our different identities, I believe that's one of the stepping stones for change because again by being on Twitter you know looking at Fox News you're not going to get a full perspective or even an accurate perspective of someone else's lived experience you have to like go to where they were and I was talking about the example of Jesus Christ. Jesus wasn't this pompous person um, who just, you know, was like, I could walk on water, like forget the rest of y'all. He literally went to where the sex workers were. He went to where the mentally ill people were. You know, he went to everyone who wasn't like him to have these dialogues um, and really do it I mean, in a genuine fashion. Which leads me to my second point, which is radical love. Um, without love, um, you're not going to accomplish anything. And that's just my perspective, is that, you know, radical and grasping it at the roots, understanding that, you know, if we're talking about race, you may slip up and say the N word. And although I get offended, like I really have to intentionally love you through that. Again, trying to understand where you're coming from and how can we heal from that situation and heal from these dialogues that we're having. And then I think the last um, main point in terms of like truly being effective, it's naming the issue. Um, one of the biggest things that we ha- issues that we had back in September is that we had the incident where our MSA president Peyton Head was called the N word. He did a Facebook post about it. It got thousands of shares. It made it to I think the Washington or Huffington Post. It got national attention. But our administrators didn't acknowledge it for almost six days.
0: Mm. Even
1: after like almost six days later, when they made a, a very short, insincere email about it. They never even acknowledged what the issue was, understanding that calling someone the N-word is a racialized incident. And so even the fact that, you know, two weeks after that, we were still fighting for them to acknowledge racism. And, you know, again, two and a half weeks later, they finally did. It's like once you actually acknowledge what you're fighting, like, you know how to fight it. Again, I can be in this dark room with the door closed. And if I don't know what's in front of me, I'm going to miss everything that I'm trying to hit. But once I turn on the lights, I know exactly where my target is. I know what I need to do to accomplish my goals. And so I think very simply, like the way we heal is understanding that we have an issue, not trying to sweep it under the rug, which oftentimes happens.
0: Oh, man. Like I said, thank you for taking the time to answer those questions and really um, add your own under that. Thank you. I love how like podcast stuff. I can edit all this stuff out. <laughs> Thank you for the time taking to answer those questions, man. And to wrap it all up, we're going into our rapid change culture change round where I ask you five questions and you take around 10 to 20 seconds um, to answer them. And then we wrap it all up, man. You ready?
1: Um, as ready as I'm going to be.
0: <laughs> what is the best piece of advice that you've ever received?
1: Always love people um, and have compassion for the world.
0: Hmm. What is one of your personal habits that you can attribute to your success thus far?
1: Reading, reading every second that I can and not like reading for class, but reading for leisure.
0: Mm. Third question, and you can kind of elaborate on the 10 second. I usually ask, what is your favorite book and why? But I really want you to give us um, our non-informed audience and our informed. Three books that three to five books that we could read to kind of educate ourselves on the conscious movement, the black movement that um, we're, we're probably not hip to. So please, please educate us.
1: OK, so um, I think a really great book to start off with um, would be um, a book by Angela Davis called um, Our Prison Systems Obsolete. Um, She takes a really in-depth viewpoint on the prison industrial complex. She she talks about the school-to-prison pipeline, and she also talks about the factors of why do we have the policing system that we do. So when you talk about the the national environment that we have right now on the conversation around police brutality and prison systems and mass incarceration, I think that's a really great, very short read, Um, uh, and it took me about a couple hours to read that, um, to really really give you a a pretty in-depth context for being such a short book about not only the prison industrial contracts, but also school to prison pipeline, mass incarceration as well. So, um, our prison systems, absolute, absolute, excuse me, by Angela Davis. Um, great book uh, in terms of foundational, like where we are right now. Um, the next book will be, um, brainwashed by Tom Burrell. When we talk about the, one, the myth of black inferiority that, you know, stuff like black people are just inherently stupid and savage. um, It really breaks down where that comes from, as well as breaking down the system of like, why do black men uh, approach and interact with black women the way we do? Why do we have the relations that we do with white people that we do? Why is it the fact that we operate in the economic system that we do currently? And why is it that Black people specifically continue to be disadvantaged in certain ways um, and even conversation on, on how, you know, welfare looks one way to white people. Um, and then when you talk about welfare with black people, it looks a totally different way, or at least that's the way it's portrayed in the media. Um, so it's a really foundational book if you want to challenge a lot of the, the ways that you think in terms of like, how do we get here? Because even talking about black on black crime, um, it really breaks down how black on black crime is not a thing. It's not. Black on black crime is a rhetoric. Um, given by mm. white supremacy you know, standards to try and infiltrate our community and get us to break down each other. Um, do black people kill other black people? Absolutely. But this book really um, breaks down how that myth happens because intra-racial crime is 85 to 90%. So white people kill white people at a 90% rate, it's just the same way that Latino to Latino, black and black. black so again, I'm, I'm rambling on that, but that is a great foundational book. Um, Brainwashed by Tom Burrell. Um, if you really want to get some foundational um, basis for just the 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 way that you know Black people have been socialized and how that's continued to have impacts for us um, even to this day, and then the last book, um, ah man, there's too many good books to, to choose this I I know I
0: know I know I know it's, I know. It's really not
1: fair. It's really not. Fair. <laughs> but um, I guess I would say is that um, another really great book um is Post Traumatic Slave Syndrome.
0: Oh, I read that. I did get, yes, I got my little, uh, uh, I got a slice of uh, my activist card. I read that book. I love that book. Yeah,
1: so if you want to talk about building off of, like, foundational, you know, reading W.E. Du Bois and really reading M.O.K., like, this is a great, like, piece in terms of, like, really elevating and projecting you forward in terms of activism. Because when you talk about why um, this system of white supremacy is set up the way it is, we need to fight back. Against the system. Um, I, I got so, there's so many lessons to be gained from this book. Um, I'm, I'm not going to do it justice by trying to explain it. But it's, it's truly um, not only like uh, telling us how to fight back, but the biggest piece that I really gained from it is this idea of black healing and understand that, like, we really do have to claim our past and understand where we came from. Um, going back to, you know, you know, our roots in Africa, um, to really understand and start healing as we go forward. Um, so post-traumatic slave syndrome, um, from Dr. Joy DeGruy, um,
0: is a, is another great one. Gosh, man. And at the, um, if you have, if if you have time, um, we're not going to get into this show, but you can feel free to email me any other books and I'll make sure I put in the show notes and I'll, I'll, I'll make sure I have it on the website. So for those that just want as much knowledge on this the situation as possible, please feel free to email me what books so I can I can have it for the audience. Oh, absolutely. Because um, I
1: because mean, uh, the list goes on cause, you know you have the whole series of black authors that I would suggest because there's even people who do fictional work like um uh, you know obviously like James Baldwin we have the Toni Morrison's but then we have people who aren't black who are doing this work um with the the Paulo Freire Paulo Cholo um so many so many people so. Nah, I
0: appreciate you dropping them down, dropping those those books and those tools and I know the audience will too. Um our fourth question. What inspires you the most and keeps you motivated?
1: Oh, hands down the community. Um when you look at how the community here mobilized around recent events with the the hunger strike and, and um everything that happened on campus, um I you know how the community mobilized in Ferguson, I got to see that firsthand how the community back home in Nebraska has mobilized and with our issues with gun violence. Um, wow. You know, and I, it always leaves me speechless. So um, the community will always probably be the, the inspirational factor because like the heart of people um, when they come together and they're really passionate about, you know, getting change to happen um, in their respective areas, whether that's, you know, within the, you know, the criminal justice system, the education system, you know, just, you know, getting more black businesses, whatever the case is, um, I think it's so powerful to, to witness that. So I think the community is probably, you know, beyond, you know, God, you know, who is, who is you know, my creator and, you know, the sole source of everything I have um, on, a, on a more earthly foundational level. It truly has to be um, the, the community.
0: Great, man. Our last question in, uh, for that round is if you were the president of the United States, what is the first thing you would do?
1: I probably honestly wouldn't be the president of the United States. Just understand. <laughs> I mean, nothing against, you know, the, the, the presidency, you know, and Obama. And, but, you know, it's just not a, a place where I would be close enough to the community to affect change, um, because what I would need to happen um, if I did have like this all you know purpose authority, which, you know, really, you know. Start evaluations of, you know, police and how police are trained Um, when we talk about the education system um, and and how we can take money away from, you know, funding war and actually fund um, the the feeding of poor people in our nation, Um, you know, providing homes for veterans who have gone out and fought for this nation and have come back to nothing. Um, so, you know, there, there's things that I want to do, but I think I, I could achieve them better um, from a, a, a source of community involvement than I could from, you know, the bureaucracy of the, of the presidency.
0: Mm, great, man. Great. Thanks for wrapping up that round. And we always end with this last question before I let you go. Um, and it's 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 a I'm not going to say it's a doozy. I, I'm listening to too much entrepreneur on fire. It's a doozy. nah. if you have if you have one wish, right, if you could change one thing about society most specifically, our African-American culture, what would it be and why? This is the deep one. Yeah, yeah
1: it's, it's another deep one, right? It <laughs> you, you go so, so many different directions, right? Uh, yeah. I think the first thing that comes to mind is, honestly, I wouldn't change anything about black culture. I love black culture immensely um, and, and everything that we have to offer. Um, it's unfortunate that it gets, you know, appropriated by white culture and white media all too often. So maybe, you know, one answer is simply wanting rep- uh, proper recognition and acknowledgement and space um, for um, black culture to thrive. Um but otherwise, I, I really, you know, I, I love us for who we are in terms of black culture. So I don't, I don't know if there's anything I particularly change other than change the, you know, the access, the opportunities that we have as black people to really, um, truly be successful in this, in this lifetime.
0: Man, like I'm gonna be honest, like your answer really maybe question how I phrase this freaking question because <laughs> I ask it and the question is kind of phrased in a context like there's something wrong with our culture or it has to be viewed from a different lens. So. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go back. I like how deep it is, but I wanna. I might have to rechange how I kind of uh, put that question, cause I like you. I like how you you thought about it, because it makes it seem like our culture is at a deficit or something like that. Mm-hmm. When honestly, if our culture was publicized and 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 editorialized and 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 put out on a on a pedestal or viewable to all the whole spectrum of our culture. It would be so dynamic, so powerful, so life changing that people, everybody want to be in this culture because there's some great stuff going on. So I'm glad that you attacked it that way, man. So before I let you go, um, I know this 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 interview was specifically about yourself, but I know there is a lot of people involved in the movement that are supported it that are still on the ground. So is there anybody or any people in the groups or organizations you want to shout out um, on the show? uh right now that have really played a a huge part outside of like the uh, they played a huge part in in what you have what you have done uh
1: yeah so uh you know first off you know shout out to uh shout out to my mother uh who who's been sending out you know care packages and you know really taking care of you know everybody since day 1 um, definitely shout out to Concerns Student 1950, um, the group and the organization that's really done a lot of um, the recent activism on campus. Um, definitely shout out to ALAS, which is the, the uh, Association of Latino Students on campus um, that has really done a lot of pivotal work. Um, shout out to Four Directions, um, um, which is the um, uh, indigenous people's organization on campus. Uh, what else? Uh, shout out to Whirly Street um, Roundtable. Um, which has done a lot of the community engagement in, in our uh, low income
0: communities in, community, uh, in Columbia. Uh, darn it, I hate listening people because I'm going I know, I know, I know, I know. Uh, you got to have that catch all at the end. And so everybody can be like, oh
1: man, he ain't shout me out, bro. Like, what's good? The, uh, who else? Who else? Uh, MU for Mike Brown. Obviously, that's where a lot of our roots in terms of current activism has come from, from post Ferguson. Um, Ah oh, man, who else? Uh, so many people. Uh, you know, general just the social justice community, the the groups that we have coming out of the Gaines Oldman Black Culture Center, um, the groups we come out of the Multicultural Center on campus. There, there's so many people who are involved in this beyond just Black students. Um, I'm forgetting people, and I you know charge it to my head, not my heart. Um, but there there are countless individuals who uh, and groups who have been ha- helping out on campus specifically. So um, shout out to everyone involved, and, and definitely. Um, the the fight continues because of them.
0: I got you man. So that wraps up the interview man. Like I said, I will say from from my heart, from the audience heart, man, this is the one of the best. Um but definitely the most powerful interview that i have done thus far because it's specifically on the current issues and what's going on so i sincerely appreciate you taking your time i know you're working on eight different tests (laughs) you have a lot of i know you i know you're working on doing a lot right now so thank you for giving us an hour of your time dropping this now dropping this bomb and hopefully 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 we can take this conversation not just from your lens, not from my lens, but to our own discussion with our friends and, and our peer groups to start having these open conversations and start building and learning and growing together. So thank you so much for being on the podcast, man, giving your knowledge and really adding value, brother.
1: I appreciate you having me.
0: No problem, man. And, and, and before we end, how can people get in contact with you? I don't not an Email address. I guess your best form of contact probably is Twitter, right? Because you on Twitter all day, every day. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Twitter is my study break thing. Uh,
0: yeah, but
1: like, find me on Twitter um, underscore Jonathan Butler. Um, and then, you know, if you really want to connect, you know, um, you can DM me and we can, you know, get connected that way and, and you know follow up via email. Uh, but yeah, yeah, right now, you know, um, that that's probably the best way. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's the best way. Like I'm telling you, getting in contact with him is like getting in contact with Malcolm X, which I appreciate because there's a lot of because there's a lot of stuff behind the scenes that being that you put yourself in that spotlight, especially for what you put yourself in the spotlight for that. You really got to be careful with your information like you you can't. So this is like that's why I got I'm glad I got an interview because, I mean, yeah, yeah, man. So, like I said, I appreciate you 100. My brother, let me know if any way that I could support any way that I can do in my lane to support. Continue doing what you do. You're you're, going to be in my prayers, man. Um, And stay strong, brother. Stay strong.
1: Appreciate it so much.
0: Thank you, man, man. We're out and I'll send you uh I'll send you a follow up email. Uh, cause I'm I'm gonna edit it. I gotta go to church right now. <laughs> we are our evening service. So I'm gonna edit it, I'm gonna get this thing out pretty quick, man. So I'll send you send you the link and, and when it's going out, man, and I appreciate you, brother. All right. All right. All right, man. All right, peace. Peace. I will say that was one of my longest episodes. Probably will be the longest episode ever of the Minority Trouble as a podcast, but I really didn't want to shortchange Jonathan. I didn't want to shortchange the issue. So I asked as many questions as I could and really just wanted him to elaborate on a lot of those answers. So I I mean, thank him for letting us have that time and thank y'all that listened through to the end for listening. And hopefully we can kind of continue the discussion, not. Primarily with me, myself, or with John, but primarily within your friend group, within your your social circles and surroundings, and ask yourself these questions, educating yourself so you can add value the way only you can add value. So thank y'all again for tuning into the Minority Tro as a podcast. I mean, we've been an hour and ten minutes strong in here, but we held it down. Y'all held it down. So before I, before I end, make sure for all new episodes, you can you can find us on iTunes at the Minority Trailblazer Podcast.com. Please give us that five star rating and a review. You can also find us on SoundCloud at the Minority Trailblazer Podcast. And you can find us online at www.greggyhill.com/mtpodcast. So thank y'all for tuning in. And before I end, before I end, like I always do, I need you to do one thing, one thing, one thing only change the culture. Good night, America.